The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. You know, when we talk about a free trade agreement between Australia and India, we should remember that the Indian government, since Prime Minister Modi came to power in 2014, has not signed a single free trade agreement. Ideologically, the BJP has an economic nationalist orientation. It is more inclined to protect the domestic economy than to try and increase the competitiveness of Indian economy by exposing it to competition. You know, Australia's traditional exports have been dairy, meat, but they, you know, I think are off limits in this Australia-India trade negotiations. And I think there should be more room for other niche products such as wine, gourmet cheeses and those sorts of things that the growing middle class in India are most interested in. In this episode, Growing the India-Australia Relationship. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. As Australia's relationship with its largest trading partner, China, continues to deteriorate, it should come as no surprise that Australia is cultivating its friendship with Asia's other behemoth, India. On the surface, the two nations have a number of similarities. Democratically elected governments, British common law, an obsession with the game of cricket and a growing wariness towards Beijing. So not unexpectedly, Canberra and New Delhi have sought to bolster security ties, both bilaterally and as members of the Indo-Pacific grouping, the Quad. At the same time, the two governments are also working towards a comprehensive free trade agreement before the end of 2022. But as India and Australia move to friendlier relations, it's worth asking whether a mutual suspicion of China makes a sound basis for closer ties. What are the real issues that bind and separate India and Australia? Who will be the winners and losers of the proposed free trade agreement? And what will it take to build better people-to-people ties? With us to examine the fabric of issues that underlie the Australia-Indian relationship are the Honourable Lisa Singh, CEO of the Australia-India Institute and former Australian Senator, and political scientist and regular on Ear to Asia, Dr Pradeep Tunisia from the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Lisa, and welcome back, Pradeep. Thanks, Ali. Hi, Ali. Lisa, if I can start with you, you wrote recently that in security and foreign policy terms, 2021 should be remembered as the year the Australia-India relationship soared to unthinkable new heights. Given that pretty optimistic assessment, how important do you think the two countries are to each other? Oh, they're incredibly important to each other, Ali. I mean, I think uh, 2021 really put the Australia-India relationship firmly on the map. We know in the past the relationship has sort of ebbed and flowed over many a decade. But if you look at Australia and India today, they are in a lot stronger position with each other compared to, say, after the Second World War when they were both on the sort of opposite sides of the power blocks there. I think one of the really interesting components of last year in terms of the bilateral relationship is the fact that it's now a commitment that both countries want to pursue a free trade agreement again. And we know this has had a chequered pass, but now there's full steam ahead to make that happen. And in terms of a trade relationship and the opportunities for Australia in that space, I think that's incredibly exciting as we move into this year of 2022. All of this, of course, is on the backdrop of the fact that both countries at the leadership level have signed a comprehensive strategic partnership. And with that, comes all sorts of commitments for countries to make sure this relationship becomes a lot stronger than it has been in the past, as it should be. If you look at India at the moment, it's the fastest growing economy in the world. Last quarter, I think, or at least in September quarter last year, its GDP growth rate was something like 8.4%. This is obviously off the back of the fact that we're in the in climate of a pandemic. I think the fact that the Australian government has made sure that it's putting all sorts of resources into the relationship through former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, sent twice to India so far as a trade envoy, really shows the commitment, I think, by Australia to really want to drive its trade and investment relationship with India. Pradeep, what do you think? How do you describe the Australian-India relationship? 
Well, I think the relationship certainly has been transformed over the last few years. I mean, if you go back to 2014, when Prime Minister Modi came for the G20 meeting in Brisbane and then made a bilateral visit to Canberra, this was the first time, I think, in 27 years that an Indian Prime Minister had visited Australia. And since then, of course, we have not seen Prime Minister Modi visit Australia again, but certainly we have seen a frequent exchange of leaders, ministers, and other officials from both sides. So the relationship, I think, has been transformed. But in terms of substance, I think there is still a lot of scope for development in the substantive part of the relationship. The strategic relationship has been growing. We've seen Australia invited to the Malabar exercises and Australia inviting India to participate in the Australian exercises. So at the defense level, we have seen significant progress. But economically, the relationship is still very underdone, I think. Given the size of the two economies, India is one of the largest economies in Asia. Australia is not a small economy either. So there is a significant potential. And particularly when you compare Australia's economic relationship with China, the relationship with India is about one-tenth of that relationship. So there is a huge potential for the relationship to develop. And I think at the political level, there has been considerable progress. At the strategic level, there is a much greater understanding of each other's position and interests. But at the economic level, I think there is a lot that needs to be done. I do want to pursue that question of economy and trade in a moment. But Pradeep, can I ask you, you talk about defence and strategic ties as being, I guess, the fastest growing. Where does China fit in that? And as I mentioned in the introduction, to what extent is mutual suspicion of Beijing the driving force of this closer relationship? I think any realistic assessment of the growing Australia-India relationship, or for that matter, growing India-US relationship, would suggest that China is an important factor. It is, of course, not the only reason, not the only factor, but certainly China's behaviour in recent years, particularly since Xi Jinping came to power, indicates that Australia and India have both found themselves at the receiving end of Chinese aggression or Chinese anger. In India's case, border conflict, India-China border had been peaceful for a long time, despite you know, occasional tensions on the border. There had not been a single casualty on the border, at least no shots fired in anger. But we saw in 2020, more than 20 Indian soldiers you know, lose their lives, a number of Chinese soldiers, although we are not sure exactly how many Chinese soldiers died in that conflict. So both India and Australia have been at the receiving end of Chinese aggression. In Australia's case, it's been verbal aggression, criticism, abusive language used against Australia, and also economic coercion exercised by China against Australia. So that does, I think, play part in how Australia and India look at China and look at the broader Indo-Pacific region and see the need for working together. Lisa, do you agree with that? How key do you see China as a driver of the relationship? Well, I think, you know, you need to look at both countries sort of individually on the issue of China. I think China looms large in India's security consciousness because it shares a border with China and it's had those ongoing border disputes for a very long time. Australia, of course, has been at the end of the economic sanction situation of China with last year in May uh, imposing tariffs on Australia's barley and, and wine exports. This is where the geopolitics of our relationship with China and indeed in the region is playing out into the economic sphere. And that's why I think it's very important that Australia does look for new trade and investment opportunities and India being the obvious one there. Having said that, I really think we shouldn't just be doing it because of those sanctions that China has imposed. We should be doing it anyway. We should be pursuing a stronger trade relationship with India anyway, because it is, as I said, the fastest growing economy in the world. There is so much opportunity for Australia to build with India. And of course, some common interests in the fact that we're both democracies, we're both part of the Commonwealth. There's a lot of alignment for Australia to pursue that with India, regardless of the China factor. But of course, I think we need to also recognise China's growing influence 
in the Indo-Pacific region. And of course, that's playing out there for Australia and India, wanting to be part of the quadrilateral security dialogue and looking at ways in which the quad can play some sort of counterbalance role there in the Indo-Pacific region. I mean, I think one of the things really interesting for Australia, perhaps not so much for India, is the fact that you know, we're becoming more of a a multipolar Indo-Pacific. For Australia, that's sort of quite unique. You know, we've always had that strong alliance with the United States. For India, that sits quite more comfortably. But this is where the dynamic is changing the region and China definitely is playing the role in that strategic change. Lisa, I take your point that it's not just about China, which is also the point that Pradeep was making, but do you think that China has given a level of momentum to the development of the bilateral relationship without which we wouldn't have this same, you know, flurry of official visits, this push for the trade negotiations, which have been going since 2011, but now they want to bring them to a close, the Malabar exercises, the Navy exercises, there seems a renewed vigour Do you think part of that is the impetus of China? Well, look, I think in terms of Australia, we need to take a step back here. The Australia-India relationship, it has really increased in the past year or two, but it actually has started to build momentum since Prime Minister Julia Gillard's time as Prime Minister. I mean, she was the first Prime Minister to visit India in a very long time. And, of course, since then we have had Prime Minister Modi in 2014 that's some seven, eight years ago now, uh, visit Australia. And, you know, that was an incredibly important turning point for the Australia-India relationship, which was, you know, sort of predates the China change that's going on in the region. I think the fact that Prime Minister Modi at that time, he actually acknowledged that, you know, Australia will not be at the periphery of our vision, but at the centre of our thought. And I think he's lived up to that in all sorts of ways. I mean, originally... India actually snubbed Australia when it wanted to join Malabar. And now, of course, we've been invited to be part of that, as we have invited India to be a part of Oz Index. Now, all of that sort of naval strategic play that's going on between our two countries, I'm sure, has China at the heart of it. But it also is about recognising the importance of wanting to create a more stable and prosperous and peaceful Indo-Pacific region overall, be that in the Indian Ocean or in the South China Sea or on the Pacific Ocean. So I think it's a bit of more of a broader play going on here than just the China factor. And when it comes to the Quad, Pradeep, what impact is the Quad having on the bilateral relationship and how far do you think the Quad can go? I think Quad obviously is an important part of the Australia-India relationship. But just before we talk about the Quad in more detail, let me add that apart from considering China as a factor in the Australia-India relationship, I think even more important factor is the United States, and particularly in the transformation of the relationship between the United States and India. Since 2005, the US-India relationship has been completely transformed. I mean, throughout the Cold War, India and the US were on, on the opposite sides of the spectrum. In 1971, during the Bangladesh war with Pakistan, the United States sent its seventh fleet in the Bay of Bengal to intimidate India. But since 2005, we've seen a significant change, significant improvement, if you would like, in the relationship between the United States and India. In 1998, when India conducted its second series of nuclear tests after the first one in 1974, United States and Australia were strongly critical of India. But by 2005, in the aftermath of 9-11, and also in the dialogue that took place between United States and Australia in the wake of the Indian nuclear tests, Indian and Pakistani nuclear tests in 1998, I think United States security establishment developed a, a different understanding, an improved understanding of India's security environment. So much so that in 2005, President Bush, Bush Jr., told Prime Minister Manmohan Singh that the United States would help India to achieve a great power status. And since then, we have seen the U.S.-India relationship has been on an upward trajectory. And I think Australia-India relationship has also been a corollary of that development because the improvements in India 
US relationship have contributed to Australia having a greater confidence in dealing with India. The US, of course, being one of the partners in the Quad together with Japan. Exactly. And the Quad, of course, was something which happened not in a very coordinated manner, although I think the former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, might claim some credit for it. But in 2007, when the officials of these four countries, US, Japan, Australia and India, when they met in Manila for the first Quad meeting of officials, This was in the aftermath of the 2004 tsunami and how these countries have worked together in providing assistance to the countries that were affected by the tsunami. And they decided that given the cooperation that they had achieved and given the changes in the security environment, that they should try and work together. But unfortunately, after the first meeting in 2007, for a decade, we did not see a second meeting take place. India blames Australia. Australia says, no, it wasn't Australia's fault. But leaving aside, you know, who is to blame for it, the fact is that by 2017, these four countries had found a common ground to continue with the Quad. And Quad, of course, is on a much stronger footing now. Paul Keating, for example, described the Quad as a joke. I personally don't think Quad is a joke. I think Quad has much more substance now. And President Biden, in hosting the first face-to-face meeting of Quad leaders in the White House, I think has made sure that Quad is here to stay. Pradeep makes a good point in terms of the fact that the Quad in 2007, it didn't last the distance. But I think if you look back at that time, it really was perceived as lacking coherence in terms of what the Quad was all about. And I think that's where the difference is today. I mean, Interestingly, the Quad was founded on a a sort of a humanitarian basis after the tsunami in 2004. And today, if you look at the agenda of the Quad, it is very much on those similar non-traditional security issues that it's sort of forging ahead with its various working groups on, you know, on the COVID-19 pandemic, on vaccines, on climate change, emerging technologies, infrastructure. There's a range of areas that sort of fall under that sort of development framework that the Quad is pursuing. But, of course, you know, there's no doubt that today, because the Quad has elevated to the leadership level, that it is about looking at some sort of strong diplomatic statement of alignment in addressing China in that sense, you know. And I think China is what draws these four countries together I think the Quad can be read as a means to address the growing Chinese influence in the region, but its agenda is so much more than that. I do want to move away from security issues, but if I can just finish on this, Lisa, by asking you, do you think the Quad is an important pillar to the bilateral relationship between India and Australia? Absolutely. Yeah. Look, I think there's a lot of alignment between the Quad's agenda and the bilateral relationship between Australia and India. I think the fact that India is now more deeply engaged in the Quad also helps the bilateral relationship, as it does with its bilateral relationship with the United States. But equally, I think there's been a a sort of fundamental shift in both Australia and India's strategic thinking, and that is why they are both playing active roles in the Quad. So it is helping the Australia-India relationship in terms of shaping a new regional order. Let's look at trade. And Pradeep, you said at the outset that economically there are issues between the two countries and you made the point it's about one-tenth of our two-way trade to China, the two-way trade to India. So why do you think it has been so hard to grow trade with India, particularly as Lisa was pointing out, India does have such a high rate of economic growth? I think India's economic growth has been fluctuating. I mean, First of all, India's recent growth rate is on the back of a collapse, you know, a nearly 8% collapse in the economy during COVID. So India is again starting from a low base in terms of registering this recent spurt of economic growth. India does have significant economic potential. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But the nature of the Indian economy is very different from the Chinese economy. China has become the factory of the world. So over the last 40 years, China has been a key customer for Australian commodities. India, on the other hand, is not as big a customer of Australian commodities. Indian manufacturing is not growing as rapidly 
you know, as Chinese manufacturing grew in the 1980s and 90s. So India's economy has a very different structure. There are fewer complementarities between India and Australia than we saw with Australia and Japan, Australia and South Korea, and later on Australia and China. So I think simply the structure of the two economies are different. And that's why I think the two governments have found it very difficult to strike this uh, comprehensive economic partnership agreement because really on both sides, there are reservations about making concessions. In India's case, of course, Indian government is very unlikely to make concessions as far as agriculture is concerned. So if Australia is demanding concessions in the dairy sector or other agricultural sectors, I think no Indian government, not just Prime Minister Modi, no Indian government is likely to make any concessions anytime soon. So there's a lack of complementarities between these two economies. If Indian manufacturing were to grow rapidly over the next decade, then it is quite possible that India too would become a significant buyer of Australian commodities. At the moment, for example, if you look at iron ore, India and Australia compete in overseas markets. India also exports iron ore. But India's iron ore reserves aren't as plentiful as Australia's. So if India's domestic demand for iron ore were to increase, if India's steel production were to increase, then you will see that India could become a net importer of iron ore from Australia. But I think there is some way to go before that happens. Lisa, just before I get you to respond to what Pradeep said, can you actually just draw us a quick picture of what the biggest exports are both ways between the two countries? Well, look, first, two-way trade in goods and services between Australia and India has substantially grown in value. If you look at 2007, it was at $13.6 billion. It's since 2020, it's $24.3 billion. So things are on the upward trajectory. But if you look at the current value of Australian exports to India compared to China, that's where there is a really quite a stark difference. Last year, Australian exports to India were $18.7 billion compared to $167.6 billion to China. Now, that is where we've got to do a whole lot better. Some of the key exports to India from Australia include coal, LNG, aluminium and non-monetary gold. But, of course, our biggest driver of export is education. Education is by far the largest, valued at something like $6 billion and accounting for around 88% of the total of our exports in 2020. So it's something here at the Australian India Institute we really focus on. And one of our institute's senior researchers did a study on student mobility and found that prior to the pandemic, there was, you know, a massive amount of students coming to Australia from India, and that was really driving our exports in terms of education. But since the end of 2020, Indian students to Australia have really dropped, and that's obvious because of all sorts of reasons. Travel bans obviously played a role. The pandemic itself, though. But there are other areas in which, you know, Australia is trying to increase its export market, agriculture being one of those. But that's a very sensitive area for India. Do you agree, Lisa, with Pradeep, that the Indian government is not going to give Australia access anytime soon to agriculture? Absolutely. I think as India seeks to sort of protect its domestic producers, with over 50% of the working population employed in the agricultural sector, that's not going to change in the future. And Australia needs to recognise that in its trade negotiations. You know, Australia's traditional exports, of course, have been dairy, meat, but they, you know, I think are, in a sense, off limits in this Australia-India trade negotiations. And I think there should be more room for other niche products such as wine, gourmet cheeses and those sorts of things that the growing middle class in India are most interested in. I mean, there's a lot of room for growth here, but we do need to recognise that India has a deep and historical protectionist instinct that even persists today. And uh, I think the word swadeshi, which loosely translates to self-sufficiency, shows you, you know, and you can see it, several of Prime Minister Modi's policies, such as Make in India, are all about increasing self-sufficiency, you know, promoting domestic industry, domestic trade and reducing reliance on foreign suppliers. It still does have a strong desire to look after its own population, especially its farmers and its overall workforce. 
So, Pradeep, do you think that this comprehensive economic cooperation agreement that the two countries are now working on and have been for some time, do you think that it is a case that we can get an agreement that can focus on the areas that Lisa was talking about, not on agriculture, but areas where there, there might be room for trade agreement? I mean, are you hopeful that the so-called seeker, as that agreement is called, might be a game changer? I think it's going to be very difficult. Of course, if there is political will on both sides, there could be some sort of agreement. But will it be a comprehensive agreement? Will it be an agreement that satisfied the Australian industry and Australian agriculture? I think that is highly unlikely. I mean, remember in 2014, Prime Minister Modi and Prime Minister Abbott said that they will conclude this same agreement in 12 months. And that, of course, did not happen. Uh, We could not even have an interim agreement you know, early harvest agreement by the end of last year. And that is also proving to be very difficult. And, you know, when we talk about a free trade agreement between Australia and India, we should remember that Modi government, since Prime Minister Modi came to power in 2014, has not signed a single free trade agreement. India was involved in the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership uh, negotiations, you know, from the beginning, but India pulled out of that because India was unwilling to make concessions which would have benefited China. So China was a very important factor. So I think the general orientation of the BJP, of Prime Minister Modi's party, is that of encouraging import substitution rather than engaging in what the economists call export-oriented growth. Of course, the Indian government wants to increase Indian exports, and Indian exports have increased. But at the same time, I think the general orientation is for protecting the domestic economy, not just agriculture, but also protecting domestic manufacturers from international competition. So ideologically, the BJP has an economic nationalist orientation. In other words, it is more inclined to protect the domestic economy than to try and increase the competitiveness of Indian economy by exposing it to competition which is what I think drove China's economic growth, in fact, in the 1980s, 90s, and particularly after China became a member of the WTO. So India, of course, has been a founding member of the WTO and before that GATT, but India has not been a very enthusiastic subscriber to the idea of free trade. Lisa, do you think the trade agreement with Australia is a high priority for the Modi government? I think it is a high priority for both countries. And in fact, Recently, the Indian High Commissioner, Manpreet Vora, said that he has never seen diplomats work so hard on the negotiation of this new free trade agreement. I think both countries are taking this incredibly seriously. And I think over the coming years, Australia will look to lift India into its one of its top export markets, which will be driven, of course, by this new trade agreement. And making Australian businesses aware that India is an attractive destination for outward foreign investment because India's got a huge growth trajectory and it provides such secure market access for Australian businesses over the coming years. But it's hard to know exactly what will be part of this agreement. I think that uh, if we look at people like Ambassador Wadwa, he's the author of the Australia Economic Strategy, the equivalent to our India economic strategy that was written by Peter Varghese. Ambassador Wadwa highlights that we expect to see progress in areas such as fintech and cybersecurity, critical minerals, rare earths, of which Australia is abound with, healthcare, education, cloud computing. So, you know, there are different sorts of areas uh, that, you know, Australia can really push forward with in terms of this trade agreement. Do you think Pradeep is too pessimistic? <laughs> Look, I don't think Pradeep is too pessimistic on the challenges of actually getting the agreement signed and and sealed. I think that there's going to be a number of sort of bureaucratic hurdles to get through before we actually see the finished product. But I think in terms of the process that is going on currently, I understand from both governments right up to the ministerial level, there is a real high level of commitment to get this job done. And I think 2022, I hope at least, will be the year that it happens. It's too important for Australia, but also for India. And as I said before, it plays out not just only in in the economic sphere, but also into the geopolitical. It's about really setting the scene for the Indo-Pacific of two really strong democracies in the region wanting to work closer together. 
You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. Just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by the CEO of the Australia India Institute, the Honourable Lisa Singh, and political scientist Dr Pradeep Tunisia. We're talking about the evolving relationship between Australia and India. We've looked at security and trade. Let's turn to the people side of this bilateral relationship. Certainly, I think in the past, it's been always the three C's, the cricket, the curry and the Commonwealth view of our shared interests, if you like. But Pradeep, how shallow is that today? Beyond the security issues we've talked about, what values and interests do you think Indians and Australians share? I think the relationship is significantly different from that stereotype of curry cricket and Commonwealth. Of course, Indians and Australia have, have a lot in common. So, for example, one of the reasons why we have seen the people-to-people relationship change is because of the large Indian migration to Australia. And that migration is very closely linked to, as Lisa was saying earlier, you know, education as an export industry for Australia. Pradeep, can you give us a sense of the size and the demography of that diaspora? I think according to the last census, there's about 700,000 people who are either born in India or are born to migrants from India. So 700,000 makes India you know, one of the largest sort of migrant groups in Australia. And that has completely you know, changed. I came to Australia 37 years ago, and there were very few Indians in Australia at the time. And there were, there were very few Indian students in Australia at the time because we didn't really have this full fee-paying student market at the time, even though I came as a student, but I came on a scholarship to do a PhD. And most of the students from India who came to Australia came on those scholarships. But now things are different. You know, over the last 20 years, we have seen a huge increase in the number of Indian students who come to Australia to study. And remember that in making that decision to come and study in Australia, the possibility of migration, the possibility of settling down in Australia is a very important driving factor, you know, in choosing Australia for education. And many of these students are successful. They become successful migrants when they do settle in Australia. So that has contributed to a really major difference in the people-to-people relationship, because you can imagine when you have 700,000 people of Indian origin living in Australia, they make friends, they intermarry, and that develops the connection with Australia and the connection between Australia and India. At the moment, for example, when you go to any big city in India, there's hardly any family in Delhi or Bombay or in Ahmedabad that doesn't know someone who lives in Australia. So because of this recent migration, we've seen a significant interest in Australia. And because of the migrants, we also have tourists and numbers increase. Of course, because of COVID, we haven't seen any tourists coming through. But before COVID, we saw a significant jump in Indian tourists. So overall, Indian media, for example, pays much more attention to stories from Australia, even though India still doesn't have you know, full-time journalists operating out of Australia. Australia has, I think, one full-time correspondent in Delhi. But overall, the hunger for stories about Australia and India has significantly increased Indian media is using stringers, in other words, you know, kind of part-time reporters who report on events in Australia, and not just cricket, but, you know, developments related to Australian politics, Australia's foreign relations, and of course, about the Indian diaspora in Australia. And I want to look at what role that diaspora is playing in the relationship. But Lisa, just on this people-to-people movement, is it one way, the sort of picture that Pradeep was painting there was very much about Indians coming to Australia to work, to study, to live, to travel. Is there much movement the other way? I think there's a number of Australian foreign nationals in India. There's mobility on both sides, or at least there was before the pandemic. But I think the point that Pradeep makes is that we need to go into a little bit more depth in terms of our India literacy. 
especially when you think about corporate professionals, businesses seeking to expand their operations into India, there needs to be a, a level of depth and understanding about India. But at the same time, I'm sure in India there needs to be a bit more level of depth and understanding about Australia. I mean, I've had a number of conversations with Indians who some of them see Australia as, as a racist country. It wasn't that long ago, I think it was the year I was born, that the white Australia policy was only just ending. So we do have a, a history in this country of racism and it's not been that long since we've tried to sort of address that and continue to do that with our Indigenous Australians. When I was elected to the Tasmanian Parliament, I was the only Member of Parliament from an Asian background full stop. And when I was elected to the Australian Parliament, I was only one of four parliamentarians from an Asian background. So I think, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I think this is where things need to change. It reinforces in my mind that multiculturalism is in a sense just a term and not a lived experience for a lot of people. And Lisa, to what extent did we see that at the height of the pandemic? Australia shut down flights from India and only India at the height of the pandemic. You know, they effectively locked out so many Indian Australians. What sort of an impact has that had on the relationship? Well, I think it had a very negative impact, particularly for our Indian diaspora here in Australia. That travel ban only to one country, I think, did play out quite negatively at the time. And it went further than that, of course. It meant that, you know, our diaspora families here who had children stranded in India had real difficulty in trying to to retrieve their children and bring them home. I think we need to learn lessons from that policy mistake, in my view. Whilst we all know the challenges of dealing with a pandemic, that travel ban really did send the wrong message in terms of the Australia-India relationship, and I would hope that we wouldn't repeat that sort of thing. On top of that, of course, there were a number of Indian students that uh, were studying here in Australia, full-fee-paying students that were also stranded at that time. All of these sorts of things don't play out well, but I think we do need to recognise that Our diaspora here, fastest growing diaspora in Australia is the Indian diaspora. It would be really good to see more visibility of those Indian Australians at the leadership level, as we do see very often in the UK and the US, but not so much here in Australia. And I'm hoping that over time, as our Indian diaspora grows and develops, it is obviously a lot younger diaspora in terms of its migration pathway to Australia than, say, the UK and the US. We do need that, I think, diversity and representation across all aspects of leadership in Australian society that's, you know, reflective of the multicultural basis upon which we live in. And Pradeep, do you think there's a question when we look at that, I suppose, appreciation of the diaspora in Australia, is there a question around the level of Indian literacy? I think Indian literacy has always been an issue. We have not really made a serious effort to understand India. I think there is a misperception because English is very widely spoken in India, at least by the educated classes and and the urban elite, that you really don't need to study Indian languages. It's not just about Hindi, but also many other languages which are spoken in various parts of India. So we haven't really made any serious effort to study India for a long time. There was a time when Australia used to be one of the leading centers of Indian studies in the Western world, but that has eroded. And we haven't invested, governments haven't invested in India literacy. China became much more important in the 1980s and 90s because of the economic relationship. But we haven't seen the same kind of investment by governments and by institutions, by universities in Indian studies. So India literacy has been undermined, hasn't been fully developed by governments and by educational institutions, but also media Australian media largely relies on foreign news agencies for reports on India. Any journalist will tell you that there is really no shortcut to understanding a complex country like India. You need to have your own people there. So I hope that, you know, in the next few years, we will see more Australian media organisations, not just the ABC, hosting their full-time correspondence in India. Because As consumers of media, Australian people want to see reporting from an Australian angle. Pradeep, do you see much more effort being made in India about Australian literacy than effort in Australia about Indian literacy? No, India doesn't make any effort about any country. India is so large. Countries like India and the United States don't really make 
a lot of effort. They tend to be very inward looking. They tend to be very focused on their own problems. China was different because China was a unitary sort of political system where the party could decide the priorities. So if you look, for example, at the number of Australian study centers in China, it's huge. You know, there is nearly, I think, 40 something Australian study centers in China, at least there were <laughs> until recently. In India, there is only a handful of Australian study centers. But it's not surprising, as I said, India is a very complex country, very large country, it tends to focus on itself. Even American studies is not huge in India. There's only a handful of departments in Indian universities that study you know, United States foreign policy or United States politics. So it's not just Australia. India ignores everybody. I'd just add to that, Ali, that I think when Australia thinks about India, it needs to really recognise that it's many countries in one. I mean, this is a very diverse country made up of states, made up of different languages, religions, cultures within culture. It's not one homogeneous country. And any Australian business doing business in India needs to understand that. It really needs to expand its India literacy to understand the different dynamics across different regions of the country. There is, of course, another very important side to this. And if you look at the relationship between Australia and China, Australia has been very vocal over human rights abuses, including Beijing's treatment of the Uyghurs, for example. And yet Pradeep, under Modi, Hindu nationalism is the hallmark of the ruling party. We've seen increasing Hindu extremism, targeting the minority Muslim population in particular. And yet Australia says nothing. Does Australia have a blind spot towards India's human rights abuses? No, I don't think Australia has a blind spot as such. But I think the way you deal with these kind of issues, human rights issues or minorities issues, with a democracy is different from the way you deal with an authoritarian system. In a country like India, you have options in how you approach, how you try and understand, and how you try and influence outcomes. In a country like India, when, for example, Australian politicians, whether it's ministers or opposition politicians, when they visit India, they can actually engage with opposition parties in India. They can engage with the non-governmental sector in India. They can meet with the NGO representatives. Australian High Commissioner, for example, can call a meeting of Indian non-governmental organizations, which can be attended by visiting Australian politicians. So I think the way you approach these issues in a democracy is different. And India is still a democracy. It is still at least a representative democracy where you have elections, where you do have you know, a very vibrant media. You do have independent judiciary, although there is criticism of all these institutions in India at the moment. But every time Australian politicians visit India, particularly prime ministerial visits, they also involve meetings with the opposition leaders. And remember, Indian opposition leaders don't mince words when it comes to criticizing you know, their own government, particularly on issues of importance. They would have an open and frank discussion with visiting Australian leaders. So that is happening. But your question, I think, is more about whether Australia should be directly addressing these issues. Certainly, I think if the relationship is based on shared values, because remember that one of the mantras of the bilateral relationship is that Australia and India share common values. And if democracy and freedom of expression, independent of the judiciary, respect for the minorities' rights, if that is important, then clearly it becomes incumbent upon Australian government to speak when it is called for, when there is a recognition on the part of Australian diplomats, Australia's intellectual elite, that something is not quite right, then Australia simply cannot sit quietly. Lisa? Ali, look, India has demonstrated a very constructive stance on human rights issues around the world, such as in Afghanistan, in Myanmar, and currently through its tenure as a non-permanent member on the UN Security Council, its two-year tenure. But obviously this is hard to square with the fact that, you know, it's now got to deal with some of these internal human rights issues that it's facing. And I know the Indian government is well aware of what is happening with regards to its Muslim population in India, which I think makes up around 15% of its total population. And working through that, I'm sure, is not going to be easy. But what I've seen in terms of concerning news reports 
that have come out on this, I'm sure India is looking to manage these issues in a way that doesn't damage its image on the international stage, but also addresses them domestically. It is the world's largest democracy and a country that is on the verge of signing a flurry of trade deals, not just with Australia. So I am sure that the Indian government is taking some of these issues that are occurring seriously. I think on the Australian side, we are a country that have always spoken out and advocated for human rights issues. I think something that former Prime Minister Paul Keating said recently in his uh, National Press Club address is interesting. And he talked about the fact that we should always speak out on human rights, whether it's Muslims in India or we as in China. But the point he raised was that that should not be the whole conversation of our relationship, that you have to speak firmly on these issues of rights of citizens in other countries, but you do it in such a way that it doesn't supplant wholly your bilateral discussions between the two countries. And I'm sure that is the approach Australia is taking. So our diplomatic engagement with India and other countries, I'm sure, happens a lot of the time outside of the media, very quietly, but in a way that continues to ensure that our bilateral relationships stay strong. Particularly given that you're a former senator, you sat in parliament and you do speak quite a lot about human rights issues, not necessarily just with India. When Pradeep says that Australia can't sit quietly if it feels that something is not right, do you believe, Lisa, that Australia does not sit quietly? You do believe that those exchanges away from the glare of the public eye, you do believe those exchanges are taking place? Yes, I do. Yes. Look, I have a lot of faith in our Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I I think the diplomatic work that they do across a range of countries in the human rights space is very sound. And yes, I have been a part of a number of briefings and a number of Senate inquiries over, you know, nearly a decade that proved that to me. And I'm sure things have not changed on that front. We are almost out of time. So if we can just do a little crystal ball gaze into the future, not too far. Lisa, do you think the momentum and the incentives are there for the various challenges to closer ties that we have discussed for them to be overcome? How strong do you think the current trajectory is? I'm incredibly optimistic, Ali. I think that the Australia-India relationship in 2022 is going to be the strongest it's ever been. Whether we look at it from an economic point of view, a geostrategic point of view, or even a people-to-people point of view, I think it's going to be a lot stronger than it's ever been. I think that momentum is there now to stay. And I think the proof of that is covered by a lot of what we've discussed The fact that both countries are so committed to the Quad, to its naval exercises, to its trade agreements, to ensuring we have more mobility between, you know, our flight paths between both countries, despite the fact that we are still dealing with a challenging pandemic, all shows really strong signs. But I think overall, there is that sort of diplomatic and government to government cooperation to really want to ensure this relationship is a lot stronger And in a way, it's one of those things that you sit back and think, why isn't the Australia-India relationship a lot stronger? There's so much we do have in common. We're, of course, two different countries, but at the same time, with a growing Indian diaspora in Australia, there is a lot more reasons why we should be ensuring we're a lot stronger partners in the Indo-Pacific region. Radeep, do you share that optimism? Yeah, I think the relationship is on a much stronger footing than it has been for a very long time. The economic dimension of the relationship will grow, particularly as India's economy continues to grow. India's economic history has been relatively checkered, but India sort of tends to surprise sometimes, but also often disappoints in terms of India's economic growth story. But I think the fundamentals of Indian economy are looking strong, and India should grow at a faster clip over the next decade. And as that happens, I think there'll be more substance added to the bilateral relationship between Australia and India. But in the meantime, I think the core logic of the relationship would be strategic. In other words, the strategic opportunities for cooperation, the common perception of the changed strategic environment in the Indo-Pacific region, that is going to drive the relationship. And of course, the people-to-people relationship, the 700,000 strong and growing Indian diaspora would continue to add momentum to this relationship. So, as I said, the the fundamentals of the relationship are looking quite good. And particularly if the economic relationship begins to grow at a faster pace, then I think all the pieces would be in place. 
That said, though, Pradeep, I don't like to finish on a negative note, but there's a lot of people who have promised a lot of things about India. So the potential is there. We just have to see it realized. Is that not a fair comment? Well, it is. I mean, as I said, India has been taking off for a long time and it sort of it kind of fails to take off. And everybody hopes that India is now really at that stage where it will actually become not just one of the fastest growing economies in the world and not just one of the largest economies in the world, but at least the second largest economy after China in Asia. And I think the fundamentals are there. There is a very strong entrepreneurial spirit in India amongst Indian youth, amongst Indian technology companies, but there also has to be the right political environment. And as I said earlier, Although Prime Minister Modi talks the talk of economic reforms and improving the ease of doing business in India, but the fact is that there are still many important economic reforms that need to be done in India. But politics comes in the way where you know winning elections becomes more important than, than implementing economic reforms, as we saw, for example, with the agricultural laws, the three agricultural laws which were enacted by Prime Minister Modi's government and then under very tough pressure from the Indian farmers and close to an important state election in Uttar Pradesh, Prime Minister Modi decided to withdraw those laws, and therefore the reforms have been rolled back. So this seems to be a problem with democracy, not just India, where politics comes in the way of significant economic reforms. But hopefully India can develop a national consensus on important economic reforms and implement those reforms which will really unleash India's economic potential. Well, as you say, Pradeep, India is not alone in politics getting in the way of reform. Before I let you both go, can I ask if listeners want to find more about your work and your views online, Lisa, where can they find you? Uh, They can find me at the Australia India Institute here at the University of Melbourne or on social media. Just drop me a line. Do you have a Twitter handle? Yeah, Lisa underscore Singh. (laughs) That's pretty straightforward. Pradeep, what about you? Yes, they can find me if they look under fellows of the Australia India Institute. And also, if generally they look at the University of Melbourne, I'm very easy to find. I also tweet infrequently on at Pradeep Ketanaja. So again, it's not too difficult to find. Well, thank you so much to both of you for your insights. It's been a fascinating conversation. And as I said, I hope it's one that we can revisit a little later in the year. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Ali. Thank you, Ali. Our guests have been the Honourable Lisa Singh, CEO of the Australia India Institute and former Australian Senator, and Dr Pradeep Tunisia from the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the 24th of January, 2022. Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Eatwaja is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2022, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.